happy solstice everyone and welcome to another edition of science a candle in the dark this is a monthly conversation about the wonder of science and how it illuminates our lives in this incredible universe in association with the central valley cafe scientifique we strive to make science a part of our public discourse especially here in california's central valley and i'm your host dr madhusudan katti from the department of biology at fresno state and today i want to talk uh, about biodiversity and ecosystems and the importance of the environment in places where most of us live our lives a few years ago our planet sort of passed a rubicon of sorts when the i think in 2007 or 2008 it was determined that more than 50% of earth's population now lives in urban areas in cities right so we have become an urban species ourselves if you think about what seems to be the preferred habitat for human beings and our planet itself has become increasingly urbanized we've talked about how on on previous episodes we've talked about how this age is being called the anthropocene as an age that's shaped by human activities that are changing not just you know habitats but, but the very geological activities and the climate of the planet and we've we've referred to these more in bigger broader terms but today i want to talk about some of the ecological research in urban areas that we've been conducting right here in Fresno and this hits close to home for me or close to my lab for me because my lab at Fresno State is focused on understanding what determines the structure and distribution of other species within urban environments so for the last 10 years or so that I've been in Fresno I've been building a research program where we examine the factors that influence what other birds and plants and insects and other species occur in the Fresno and Clovis metro area and more importantly how human activities influence the occurrence of these species here and what can we do to improve the environment in ways that will support both our own health and well-being as well as promoting the biodiversity that naturally occurs in this region. Now California is a pretty rich region in terms of native species diversity. There's a lot of uh, you know unique species that are found in California and of and California has also had a long history of modification of habitats and ecosystems by human activity. Of course, you know, you might be thinking mainly in terms of more recent modifications, you know, especially here in the Central Valley which has undergone a a series of pretty intense transformations in the last century or so with the advent of agriculture which has fundamentally transformed the nature of this valley urbanization has come on top of this agricultural intensification in the valley so you have had urban growth especially you know in fresno and clovis this metro area has become Uh, the fifth largest urban area in California. Uh, we are approaching a, a, a combined population of 
over 700,000. Maybe if you look at the outlying suburbs, you're probably approaching a million people that live in urbanized areas right here in the Central Valley. So what are the consequences of this kind of growth in a region that has historically been sort of a you know, relatively arid region where a lot of the agriculture has been supported by irrigation that and technologies that we have developed. We are in the midst of a historic drought in California. I, I don't need to remind our listeners of that. And, and there's been a lot of discussion of the consequences of this drought for farming especially because that's such a huge engine of the California economy. At the same time, there have also been issues of you know, how people use water in urban areas. Right, so California cities uh, have a certain almost iconic appearance and presence in other parts of the world. Right? When you think about California, you think about you know scenes you might recall from many movies. You think about lawns, you think about maybe golf courses or houses along beaches. You might think about palm trees. And if you think about the urban landscape, you also think about sprawling suburbs and broad roads and highways with lots of fancy cars driving around. That's our mental image of California. And, and if, you, if you zoom in to a smaller scale, you think about houses that typically tend to have a fairly large footprint with a lawn and, and trees, uh, including palm trees perhaps, but a, quite a diversity of trees that may or may not be from this region. In the context of this drought, there's been a lot of pressure on many of the city water utilities to cut down water usage, especially since Governor Brown's emergency declaration earlier last year and the requirement that cities cut back on water use. And many of the cities have actually complied fairly successfully in terms of reducing water use by up to a third in the past year. So we are making some progress in that, but my interest is in asking what are the consequences of the amount of water we use and the way we build these landscapes for non-human species that might occupy these, these habitats, right? So if you have a lawn, if you have trees in your backyard, what kind of birds are you likely to attract depending on the trees you have? What kind of insects might occur there and how does that influence other species that may or may not like to use that habitat? So that's been the focus of my research, especially in the last few years where we've been examining the effects of water metering uh, and its and water pricing policies on how people shape the landscape and then how what effect that has on birds. So I want to bring in our guest today. Uh, I have a young scientist here, Pedro Garcia, who only recently completed his master's thesis from my lab, studying the, the diversity of birds in particular, but in general, the ecosystems in Fresno and Clovis. Yeah. And Pedro, welcome to Science Academy in the Dark, Pedro. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. And Pedro now uh, works for the California Conservation Corps. Correct, yes. Where he is helping train volunteers to go do to apply ecological and scientific knowledge to doing conservation work. Yeah, right? exactly. Uh -huh. So, you want to tell us about uh, 
how you got started, you know, got into urban ecology and, and what your research is about? Yeah, urban ecology, I guess it started back when uh, I was first introduced to birds. I remember walking home from school, I think it was fourth grade, I was around eight, nine years old, and alongside the fence, there was a group of students that were just looking out towards the parking lot. I'm like, what are they looking at? So, you know, me being eight, nine-year-old, I peeked through, and there was this hawk. Later, I found out it was a red-shoulder hawk, but it was this red-shoulder hawk just two feet on the other side of the fence, and it was just there, just sitting, looking back at us. And I remember staring at it for a good 10 minutes, being fascinated by it. And to this day, I still remember the way it looks. I remember its color pattern. I remember its beak. And I think that's what really got me fascinated. That was the first time I noticed, wow, there's wildlife in the city. You know, this mm -hmm. was in Paso Robles, where I was raised. I'm originally from Mexico, but where I was raised in Paso Robles, it's a fairly small town at the time, farm worker community. But just realizing it's not just cities. It's not just buses and cars mm -hmm. and, and, and buildings. There's wildlife here. And ever since there, you know, I mean, I went through different phases through art, music, things like that. But I always came back to ecology and that hawk and the way it looked and just the juxtaposition of all this chaos, all this movement, the bells ringing, buses going in and out. It was just so calm and so serene. And I think that's what really got me into it. Yeah, that's fascinating because that to me is sort of almost emblematic of how many of us li growing up in cities might sometimes encounter nature and realize there is more to life on this planet than than our human yeah, concerns. Yeah. And I like that image of this this calm hawk in the middle of the chaos of the city because in some ways having pockets of nature available in the city also provide us with some refuge and some way to I think of it as recharging my batteries when I go out bird watching. Yeah, yeah. Good away point. from the stresses of our, you know, daily lives. Yeah, I agree. I mean Going back to to ecology, a lot of the past research that has looked at urban areas ha has done just that, quite the opposite actually, where they look at little pockets of areas like little green areas, little meadows, parks, and how those are refuges for animals, you mm -hmm. know, as they're affected by things like noise and traffic and things like that. But just like you pointed out, it's quite the opposite for us as well, where we're with, you know, amongst 24-7, you know, growing up in cities and urban areas, like you mentioned, more than 50% of the population is within, you know, mar large metropolitan areas. Having that effect of having this, have, just knowing nature is there within us, within our areas, and that we're a part of that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, our research and the research that you built upon is also dependent on people like you who have discovered nature in the city and, and especially, I guess, bird watchers, right? We, yeah. We, our project is built on citizen science. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that project, that aspect of the research here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the project in general, you know, it's it's doing bird counts through the Fresno Bird Count. We have, I believe, 460 points throughout all of Fresno and Clovis. And twice a year through April and May and I believe December and January, we do two seasonal bird counts that last about five minutes. Mm -hmm. And we just go out there, and within each site, we record the noise and which number of species or which type of species, as to say, types of birds, and then the total number of them. And we count those up, and then we start looking at various factors within that environment, within that setting, that would affect whether birds are present or not. So you said the bird count lasts five minutes, but by that you mean by a, a specific count at a location, right? A specific not count at a location, correct. I mean, we've been doing this project since 2008, mm -hmm. um, so it's been quite a while now, now that I think about it. Um, 
but yeah, for each site, we do a five-minute point count, which is standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is through, done throughout, let's say, the entire breeding season, April 15th to May 15th. And then again in the winter season, and it just accumulates all of the data into our database. And like I said, we put in various different factors, such as noise, um, tree diversity, wealth, you know, different socio- socioeconomic factors as well, and see how they affect birds in, in, in this specific example. So who does the counts? Uh, like you mentioned before, citizen science, we do. Um, in our lab, we have various grad students, undergrad students that participate in it. Uh, we recruit through our birds and reptiles class that's offered at Fresno State, and then various you know people that are bird watchers through the Audubon Society, the local Audubon Society, people that are interested in birds that know a fair amount of you know about birds. If not, they're willing to learn. We can you know teach teach them, tutor them through classes as well. But people that are passionate or that are able to recognize birds, different birds through their sight or through sound, um, because those are the experts, just regular people. So if, if any of our listeners are interested in bird watching and maybe want to contribute, how would they participate in this? Um, first, they would contact either yourself or myself. Uh, look us up through the Fresno directory, Fresno State directory. And we have the winter season coming up, I believe, in December, mid-December, if not early January. But as soon as possible, it would be a good way to start, yeah. We have a website. We do have a website. <laughs> we have the Fresno Bird Count website uh, that you can access. I believe it's fresnobirds.org. Yes. Right. Yeah, FresnoBirds.org. We also have a Facebook page and a Twitter feed. So if any of you are listening are interested in participating in uh, in this and contributing data to our long-term studies, please get in touch. So we've had this count going since 2008, and you've been involved in in, in this project since fe- since the beginning. Since the beginning, right? Um, I got in contact with you uh, when my first year at college, actually 2005 and started working with various different projects that, you know, eventually led into this big one. Um, I did have some previous experience with bird counts, more so in Paso Robles in the Central Coast area. So when I came here, you know, pretty much shadowed you in your classes, ecology classes, birds and mm-hmm. reptiles classes, and then I got involved that way. Okay. Uh, but you've also been coordinating the bird counts to some extent in the last few years, right? Right, right. I've, I've, I've had some help or I've helped out with that as well. So volunteers coming in will go and conduct counts. At how many locations do we have? 460 points. Yeah. So we have many years of data from this then in terms of locations and number of birds that people have documented in in various places. In addition, you mentioned a number of other variables we've been measuring as well, things like census variables on people, socioeconomic data, other aspects of the urban landscape. Yeah. So, So what are the patterns emerging from this research. What can you tell us about what is the you know, key things about birds in Fresno? The key things about birds in Fresno, well, that's, that's a loaded question. Mm-hmm. Um, it comes with a very diverse answer. Um, some of the things, some of the research that's come out so far in 2010, um, one of our grad students, Brad Sledder, did research looking at irrigation mm-hmm. and how irrigation in different, pro- in different areas throughout Fresno and Clovis, how they affected bird guilds, um, different birds based on the types of food that they eat. And we found things that ir- irrigation does affect whether birds are located at a certain area or not. Um, and, th- and by irrigation, we're not talking about farms here. We're talking about... No, th- so this is all urban, right. So, so this is all residential urban um, irrigation, mm-hmm. correct? And then a uh, different grad student, Jenny Phillips, in 2012, she looked at noise, urban noise, and how that affected birds, specifically white-crowned sparrows, in the city as as opposed to those in the rural farm areas or out, outside of cities, urban area. 
and she found that noise was a factor affecting white crowned sparrows that were migrating in the winter, mm-hmm. and they would change. So this is a little bird that I think if you might even find if you just look outside your yard right now. Right, right. It they are they're the commonest birds in the here in the winter. In the a valley, little white patch on top of their head, yellow beak, yeah. should be pretty fairly easy to identify. Yeah. Right, and so Jenny found that noise, specifically urban noise, was having an effect on different properties of white crown white crown sparrow songs in the cities that wasn't really specifically happening outside. So what do you mean by effect on song? Is it that the because of the noise, are the birds singing louder, or what kind of effects does In, in a sense, they were changing their frequency, right. So urban noise tends to be within a certain decibel range, average. And some passerine birds, like the white-crowned sparrows, when they sing their songs, part of their songs are within the same frequency range as urban noise. Let's say cars, airplanes, lawnmowers, things like that. So, so low pitch kind of Low noise. pitch, correct. And so... Because of this competition of noise, when males, male walk-around sparrows are trying to sing to mate to attract different females, or in this case juveniles are practicing their songs as well, there'd be this noise, just this harsh background in, mm. in the environment. And so in order to offset that, a lot of them were shifting or changing parts of the song, specifically the frequency of their songs, so that it would, it would be a, a part or away from the urban noise. So this is birds adjusting this... Their Singing the way we might do in a noisy environment ourselves. Yeah, right? exactly. Picture you're you're at a party, you're 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 in a pub, mm-hmm. and you're trying to talk to your neighbor, you're trying to talk to someone else, but there's a loud noise going on. You 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 know it's called the Lombard effect. You change the way you talk. You talk a little bit louder to get your message across. And so this was found to be happening here in Fresno um, with white crowned sparrows specifically, and I believe there was research done with house finches as well that was finding a similar pattern where they were changing the frequency of their songs because of the noise that was just constantly in the background. Okay. Uh, you also mentioned that irrigation had an effect on birds and bird gills. Uh, what kind of effect was that? What was the association? Did, did ir- more irrigation lead to more birds, fewer birds? I think that would be tied into a bigger question was looking how irrigation in general, why, why do we irrigate? Yeah. You know, um, in this, so this research was done pre-metering in 2013. Fresno went through a metering process that Clovis had been going through for a while now, where instead of residents just u- just paying a lump sum for as much water as as they wanted to use for their lawns, um, they had to they were broken down into different bracket groups. Where if you use a certain amount of water, you pay this much. If you pass that much amount of water, you pay the next bracket and the next bracket, things like that. Have they introduced tier pricing already? Sorry, I, thought, can you I, thought, I thought this tiered pricing was something that is being still being discussed. Oh, uh, is it? Yeah, my understanding is that they went to a, a per gallon pricing. Okay, okay. Right? There you go. Yeah, that's correct. Anyway, so metering came in in 2013. So what was the pattern before in terms of uh, what was the association between water use or amount of irrigation, as you said, was an important right. factor for birds right. and the, the kinds of birds you might find. Right. Let me pull it up here very quickly. Oh, you're looking at your data. Yeah. If I remember correctly, right? You had general a general pattern you find in cities everywhere is that higher income neighborhoods tend to get a greater diversity of bird species. This is something that's been described as a as a luxury effect in Correct. urban ecology, where go. the rich people, you know, the rich neighborhoods not only have you know the more fancy landscaping, the the bigger houses and so on, 
but those also come apparently with a greater amount of biodiversity. So going back to the initial story you shared about being able to see this hawk and experiencing nature in the city, yeah, it would seem that there is some socioeconomic disparities in being able to even experience that kind of nature. Right. Right. So the, the luxury effect that people have documented in many cities suggests that the wealthier neighborhoods have greater access to wildlife. Yes. Because, presumably because of the kinds of landscaping and diversity that they can provide in their lands in their neighborhoods. Right. Which tend to get more. So is that the pattern? The right. So, yeah, them? correct. So going back to that, you know, wealthier neighborhoods have the ability to irrigate their lawns more. Okay. So, which, assuming they do, um, it was found that properties that had more irrigation were attracting more types of different types of birds, more species of birds. Okay. Right. So the more someone irrigated, the more different types of species they had, which tied into a different research, with which, which is tree diversity. Going back to ledger effect, mm-hmm. properties or areas that had more wealth, more money coming in, they were able to irrigate more and also have a diverse amount of different tree species and plant species as well, which in turn would, would affect in, in, in affect birds, correct? So, so if irrigation is causing an increase in bird diversity, but at the same time we have this context of the drought and there's a, uh, a pressure to reduce water use. Right. And the cost of water has also gone up because of metering and might go up even further. Right. How do you think that those things will affect species diversity in the urban areas here? I think it would come down to what it w- if... If we're mandated, you know, by law, now 20, 25% of water reduction in urban areas, what are we going to do to offset that? Are we just going to completely just stop irrigating? Mm-hmm. Or are we perhaps look at the type of plants we have in our lawns, whether it's just turf, whether it's just grass? Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's programs out there such, you know, the Conservation Corps is doing some right now where they're helping residents plant more native drought-tolerant plants. Okay. And so in a sense, you are – maybe you're switching out the types of plants you have – overall richness would be there, it would be constant, you know, now we just switch it to more native plants, which if, if you know, would would come back to which bird species are you attracting. Okay. If historically you have certain bird species like the white crown sparrow that have been going through this area, maybe they're used to a certain amount of plants that because of Fresno, because of the area they were in, they are used to having more drought. Drought plants. Yeah. Okay. So, to some extent, then, the habitat for these wildlife species is is shaped by what choices people make in terms of what you put in your yard. Correct. Right? Yeah. In addition, of course, especially when you talk about birds, people also tend to put food out for birds directly. There's direct bird feeding yeah. happening as well. So, one might expect, then, that in, in, in the next few years, you you might see a change in the kinds of birds you find in the Fresno area, would you say? or Yeah, definitely. Um, we've been going through this drought officially for the last two years, mm-hmm. right? Unofficially, we, we're not really sure of. And on top of that, compounding factors like precipitation. We have El Nino yeah. is supposed to be coming in, so we don't know how that's going to affect. Where we have an area that for the last two years has been going through this drought phase, and then we're going to have this mass amount of, of rain. Um, this wh- winter, well, it's, yeah, we yeah, have so a wet week right now. Exactly. So it's, you know, look outside. It's already foggy. It's been raining for the last week. How is that going to affect birds that are adjusting to things that humans are doing in the environment, you know? Okay. We don't know. All right. So that's that's research yet to be carried out. Correct. And I guess yeah. if people want to get involved, they should go to the Fresno Birds website and uh, get in touch with us. And, you know, we'd be happy to have more people participating in this research. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
and this was the the basis of your master's research right now. But but now you're actually working for the California Conservation Corps. You mentioned that you're, among other activities, you're involved in helping people put more drought tolerant plants. Right. That's Can you tell us a bit more about what you, what the core does? Um, the core. So the it's a year long program for 18 to 25 year old, um, both men and women, mm-hmm. and a sense they're emergency responders. During the summertime, uh, this last this last summertime, they helped out a lot with the rough fire that was out near near Fresno area. Um, they also help out with floods, earthquakes. So right now they just went through flood training. They're ready, you know, how to set and lay sandbags, how to respond to that. And then throughout the year, they do other things like invasive species removal, trash cleanup throughout the highways along the San Joaquin Kings River, things like that. And me specifically, I'm in charge of core member development, so. As they're doing those projects, I teach a conservation awareness class. Mm. Why does it matter? Why is conservation within the California Conservation Corps? You know, how is picking up trash? How is removing invasive species? How is helping out with fires and floods and earthquakes? How does that relate to the environment? Well, let me let me show you. Okay. You also mentioned that you're from Mexico, but you were, yes. you were raised in, in California. Yeah, I was born in Guerrero, Mexico, in a small small little village called Cruz Quemada, which is way out in the mountains. And my parents brought me over when I was about two years old, year and a half, two years old. Okay. And I was raised in Paso Robles for pretty much 15, 16 years of my life until I moved to Fresno for college. Oh, okay. And you you also have some Native American heritage? Yeah. Um, well, it's it's fairly easy to say that most <laughs> Mexicans, 80, 85% of Mexicans are native to some type of tribe. Specifically, I'm from Mexica, Aztec tribe. And I learned a lot of my traditions through my father. Um, and so currently I do a lot of my practices as well through dance, dance ceremony and singing, yes. So does learning about and reflecting on that heritage influence the way you do your scientific research? Or has that helped you think about how it might in, uh, inform what we do in terms of conservation? I would say so, um, definitely. Specifically in the field of reconciliation ecologies, which is what we do in our lab, and I think that's one of the main reasons why I was so attracted to this field was going back to that red red shoulder hawk is that connection with nature, right? Mm-hmm. So we generally attribute Native American ceremony and, and, and traditions with the connectiveness, connectiveness to nature because historically we were a part of the land. You know, going back to anybody's tradition, you're a part of that land, mm-hmm. right? Um, yes, we all live in cities. Now we do. And we tend to think of, you know, cities evoke you know, alienation basically that we are not really connected with nature and people are you know using terms like nature deficit disorder and so on to describe urban life right now so where does that traditional connection come in in this context well for me i feel it's one in the same um just the scientific process in general ecology reconciliation ecology it meshes all that together where I'm a human being. I'm a part of nature. I'm, yes, I live in the city. Right? Mm-hmm. I was raised in the city, either through a small town like Paso Robles or a big metropolitan area like Fresno. But I don't have to go to Yosemite or Sequoia or out to the mountains to be in touch with nature. I can just look outside. If I look outside, I'm sure there's a Cooper's hawk flying over my head, right? And there's a white crowned sparrow eating through the bushes. Nature is a part of us. And not only that, but we are a part of nature. So all the actions that we take as human beings have a direct effect on the environment we have, and vice versa. Yeah. So it's the vice versa part. Okay. It's the vice versa part that's also important, right? Yes, definitely. So uh, what's coming up next for you now that you've 
finished your masters are you going to continue doing more science or are you i i think the science will, will always be a constant of of my life yes i'll continue definitely i have some results from my research that i would like to look more in depth into mm-hmm. and apart from that just how does the work that i've done through fresno state and through the science how does that affect the larger community or the larger scientific community and so i'd like to look more in depth into that and then tie it back a little bit more to my heritage and look into things like native american law and practices and how those affect as well yeah okay so uh thank you for being on the show today no Pedro. thank you and uh, i look forward to having you speak at the central valley cafe scientific uh in january so you'll be the first talk of the new year yeah. uh, and just a quick announcement that this January we are switching our schedule because uh, Peeves Pub our host is changing their schedule in terms of the days that they are open so we are going to meet on Wednesday January 6th and not the first Monday of the month so look for us uh, on Wednesday January 6th at Peeves Pub where uh, Pedro Garcia will be speaking about his research in urban ecology and his connections with nature and we'll be back on air with our next episode of science a candle in the dark on tuesday january 26th uh, for more information about the cafe and announcements about upcoming events please visit our website at valleycafesci.org or find us on facebook and twitter this show is produced by me and uh, vic bedoyan uh, and the theme music was composed by scott hatfield our engineer today is, is uh, rich withers in the booth in front of me and uh, i look forward to seeing you at the cafe and on air here and until we meet again happy sciencing because remember science is a verb this is kfcf fresno